0: ROUND ONE FIGHT! Hello everybody, it's JJJ, the Six Button Samurai, back with Ruminations of a Six Button Samurai. Huge thanks go out to everybody else on the Ruminations Radio Network, especially Mitch and Mikey and all the new peeps that I'm growing, getting to know and love um, by way of their work. Um, Yeah. You know, in previous episodes, I touched upon the underlying themes happening in my childhood and some of the key games that captured my imagination and provide a bit of shelter in challenging times. And it's those things that sort of cemented what would eventually prove a lifelong fixation. Um, From here on out, the story definitely gets a little bit bumpier. And while saying what I'm about to say might serve to dent the dramatic tension that could exist from the narrative I will share in this episode, I wanna preface this story by saying that in 2021, I have great relationships with both of my parents. But it definitely wasn't always this way. Rolling the clock back to the summer of 1990. I was in the middle of high school. Um, my sophomore year, I want to say. It, it, it would have been in between my sophomore and uh, junior years. And um, I had managed to nail down my first job. Now, here's the thing. It wasn't actually my first job. My actual first job was working at this local fast food chain, which shall remain nameless. Um, they serve a very signature frozen drink that, if you know anything about Tucson, you already know what this is. But I'm not going to spill out because uh, I don't want to make that any money. Um, but at the time I literally worked there for a month and I hated it with every fiber of my being. And it wasn't that, you know, I thought I was some kind of like prince in waiting or was like too good to do fast food work, but like I legitimately worked for some really dickish people and like. Extra work was sort of routinely handed out as like demerits. Like there was sort of a system of punishment there that really, really just ran afoul of my own personal ethos at the time. So literally, I lasted a month in that job. And needless to say, um, that didn't earn me a lot of points at home. Like they were like, what's wrong with you? Why did you quit this job already? But I knew I had this other job happening at the ballpark. And that job was basically being a hawker, running around with trays of ice cold Pepsi and throwing peanuts at people. And I learned a thing about my work ethic at that time that I find to be insanely true even now, is that if I'm in a situation where how well I am compensated is there's actually a relationship between that and how hard I work. I'm vastly more motivated to do well rather than if I'm just sort of clocking in and occupying a role for X amount of time, like that continues to just be a thing that I'm very conscious of and it's just part of who I am. So I found working at this ballpark to just be a ridiculous delight. Because it was running around with this tray of objects and making tips and shouting at the top of my lungs at the middle of a baseball game, and it was really like legitimate stupid fun, you know. Um, and it was also a thing where like I could bust my ass for two and a half, three hours, and leave with like eighty, eighty-five dollars in my pocket, and that was amazing. You know what I mean? I mean, it would take many more hours to do that by way of any other sort of minimum wage fast food job that was available at the time so you know very quickly that became sort of a thing where like i was looking for opportunities like that not just hey how can i be a wage slave somewhere um my very best friend at the time who is still a dear dear friend of mine um he was this Pakistani skater that lived in my neighborhood. And we lived on opposite ends of this big intersection that was between us. But right between our houses, there was this 7 Eleven. And so at that time, I was always dropping into that 7 Eleven because there were a couple of coin ops there. You know, clearly it was a part of somebody's route. So there were always, like, really good games. Like, whoever ran that route had, like, exquisite taste because, like, most other convenience stores of the moment, like, they would have had something like, you know, a really old Pac-Man or Robotron or just something, like, beaten up and broken that barely worked. Um, but this place always had, like really fresh new games and the guy actually took care of the cabinets so it was at this 7-eleven where i routinely played things like strider or final fight or ghouls and ghosts um and i want to say that the first game that this pakistani best friend of mine whom i'll call tq um it was at this 7-eleven that we first played like a game of final fight and that, like, sort of cemented our friendship moving ahead, you know, because it was like two players getting in that kind of thing. Um, you know, he and I had a lot in common because um, he emigrated from Pakistan. He and his mother and two brothers and two sisters at the age of like one because his father had passed away from a heart attack. And so they all came over here. Um, There's a pretty thriving Pakistani community in Tucson that was in that neighborhood where I was growing up. So um, yeah, I mean, he hadn't had his father around since he was one. My father hadn't been around since I was two and my mother, you know, left him. So, there was a lot in common there, who's also a couple of years older than I was. So, you know, there was really kind of like a big brother, younger brother sort of thing going on. Um, he also had a younger brother that would regularly hang out with us. Um, and that was just kind of our little crew, like running around the neighborhood with our skateboards. Um, the things needed for a good time in that era were so completely different. It's like, If we both had, like, he also had a job at the time. He was working at Jack in the Box, and that was also a huge part of my aversion to fast food jobs because, like, I knew what he went through. But he also had a very different imperative than I did because he, you know, given the culture of their religion being Amadi Islam and um, sort of the expectations of, like, the eldest son kind of thing, like. He had to get working like really soon after that. So he was working at Jack in the Box. And, um, you know, I was just elated to have this new way of making money uh, in the summer of 1990. So it was like work the ball game and then get out and maybe hang out at 7 Eleven somewhere, play some games or go rent a couple of movies at, you know, this is the great heyday of video stores, um, and thankfully, our favorite from that era is actually still open today, which is I recognize as kind of a miracle now. Um, they've only made it because they've embraced the whole um, craft beer aspect of things. So big shout out to Casa Video for um, anchoring something here in Tucson. Um, so yeah, that was kind of the stage at that point. Um, Many unbelievably hot summer days punctuated by running around the ballpark like a maniac, earning money, and then, you know, blowing it on stupid shit at night. You know, that was, that was my life when I was 15 years old. The first big game I ever bought with that money. Now, previously in the fall of 89, I had liquidated my NES and bumped up to a Sega Genesis And I was really excited and really into this console because, you know, my first instinct with gaming was like this deep, deep love of the arcade. And I really thought of it more like the way you thought of home video simply being the place where you consumed movies that hit theaters first. You know, I had that relationship with the medium where, you know, the arcade was always where the new hot was. And then when you got it at home, you know, that could be a real mixed bag of results. Um, But early on, there were some pretty exciting things that made me think wow, like this system's really capable of doing some amazing things. Like the port of Ghouls and Ghosts for the Sega Genesis was just like a revelation. Like, I realize now, like, there's a lot of things missing in terms of like animation and bits in the background, this, that, and the other. But at the time, it was an unbelievably excellent facsimile of the arcade game. And I couldn't get enough of it. Like, I would play the shit out of that. I would also play the hell out of Revenge of Shinobi, which further emboldened my faith in this console because that game just had unbelievable graphics and music. For the time, and the gameplay was great. Um, But it's still, you know, it was still the siren song of the arcade, kind of drawing me away from that. Um, And the thing was, TQ and I, we had this really competitive, like, there was legitimate affection and care for each other as friends, but we were also, like, super competitive, super into talking shit. And one of the ways that that would manifest is there was this really janky park that wasn't too far from that seven eleven where we'd meet up and um, we would go there sometimes and play games of horse and we would bet our we would bet our music tapes on games of horse. Now, the concept of ownership wasn't terribly important because we'd always loan each other like our tapes and CDs anyway, but it was really so much more about the bragging rights, like to take each other's stuff was just this ridiculous juvenile thrill that it would just, you know, it would either completely boost your spirits to this ridiculous level or just like, you would just fall apart, just be like, "Oh my god, I can't believe I lost to you," you know. Which later on, when the fighting game craze would jump off in earnest, you know, that would that would only intensify <laughs> between us, um, in terms of doing that sort of thing. So, first game I bought with some serious money that I rolled up from work um, was Fantasy Star Two. And, uh, you know, it was the first role-playing game that I'd ever played at all. I had no vocabulary, like, no concept of just the basics of how a game like that worked. So menu combat and navigating towns and then random battle encounters, completely foreign and new and bizarre, but... I was so completely taken with that sort of chunky 1980s anime aesthetic, you know, that I'd first come to love from shows like Robotech or Macross, that that game was an absolute drug. And now I have such mixed feelings about the enormous hint book that came with the game, because on one level, I don't think I had any sort of base level of skill or understanding of that game that would have enabled me to advance in it at all, because I'd simply never played a game like that before. But by the time the end of the summer came around and I began to get close to the end, there was one of the last few boss encounters where I was just pitifully underleveled. And I came to realize that like there were certain spells I didn't even have yet. It was just an absolute lost cause. Like, it was just not going to go anywhere. So I hung on to it for a little while longer. I think I ended up probably selling it to a friend or something because it was just sort of this monument to, like, oh, you didn't know what the fuck you were doing. And you completely just ran into a severe and inescapable dead end there were tons of other little horror show moments along the way. Like, there was a point where, um, you know, one of the key moments that people remember for that game is when the uh, half human, half bioengineered um, cat girl, Mae dies. And, like, I actually had to watch that scene twice because I got to that part in the middle of a monsoon thunderstorm and we lost power in the middle of that. So. I had to revert to my mucher, like a save that was maybe two and a half, three hours prior because I just got sucked into the narrative and I had to live through that part twice and I still didn't get to finish the game. So it's one of those great unfinished sort of horror stories of my gaming youth that still kind of lingers. But yeah, um, the other kind of big and sort of ominous thing happening in the middle of all this is that... My mom had a new romantic interest, and he was living with us at that point. It was just one of those chemistry things where, between my pretty dim view of just dudes in my mother's life by that point, where I was just like not impressed by anything and unbelievably wary, and then this individual's attitude which sort of swerved between like like trying to play my games with me and like be a friend sort of thing but then lurching between that and like sudden severe like i am your dad kind of thing even though he absolutely was not technically or even legally my dad at that point it was a bad scene and there wasn't specifically any violence in the home at that point but I just had this feeling in my gut that it was not destined to go well like something bad was on the horizon and I would eventually need to vacate like I would need to find a way to live somewhere else because I didn't like where things were headed. No, things were headed in this really kind of dark and ominous direction. And so I had this really tight relationship with my grandfather, you know, my mother's dad. Um, He and I had gone to movies for years prior to this. Like, I was just his movie buddy. Like, while he was still working, um, you know, he was a retired firefighter, he had this job leading the security team at the IBM plant that was then in Tucson. You know, and in his days off we'd go see movies. Like it was because of him that I saw movies like The Terminator and Aliens and Robocop. And yeah, you might question the wisdom of showing a ten to thirteen year old all of those movies, but you know, in his own experience, I mean, he went off to Okinawa when he was nineteen years old and He also saw horrific things as a firefighter. So, his whole attitude about a young person seeing these works of fiction, you know, he believed that if you kind of had your shit together, like it wouldn't affect you, you know. And I still very much believe that myself today. Like, it's really, it's much more about whatever people have going on internally and in their own homes that. Predicts whether or not people are going to wind up becoming problematic. You know, they're they might be drawn to those things as a way of sort of mitigating or getting away from whatever's troubling them. But they, in and of themselves, are not triggers for these kinds of things. So, at any rate, I had talked with my grandpa a number of times, and I had sort of told him what was happening. And I had proposed the idea of my just moving in with him. You know, he actually lived a little closer to where my best friend lived. And he was resistant at first. He's just like, oh, I don't think I can do that. You know, your your mom's going to flip out. But she's going to hate it. And so I kind of let it go for a while. And that whole summer, I was just like, what do I do? You know, like, it's the middle of the boiling summer in Tucson, Arizona. And, you know, I have my little escapes to the convenience store and have my outings with this job. But, you know, the daytime and the feeling in the house was just not positive. And so by the end of that summer, I did indeed hail my grandpa and just be like, I got to get out and I need your help doing this. And so that was a day that I will definitely never forget because, you know, he came over and we just began to grab things out of my room and I'd grabbed about half of my stuff before my mom came home. And I was in my room and I could hear her having shown up And she was just, her and my grandpa were just going at it. Just, she was very, very angry. And she was really, I can imagine that what she felt at that time was just a profound sense of betrayal. You know, that I had essentially branded her as not good enough to live with. And my grandpa had basically okayed that in her mind. So. She was truly, truly upset. You know, probably the best thing of all is the luck, as luck would have it, that, you know, her boyfriend was not with her at the time. He was not at the house. And God only knows what might have happened if that had occurred. But, you know, she argued with him for a while. And I just kind of hung in my room, like continuing to sort of pack my things and just, you know, I had, like, full-on spider hearing at that point. Like, you know, my skin has goose pimples, and I'm just tripping, trying to pack my things away and go about what I need to do. But then, you know, she I heard her voice kind of trail off, and I heard footsteps, and then she came into my room, and she looked at me, and, like, her face just immediately fell from rage to just... Being really, really sad. And she just kind of pleaded with me not to leave. But at the time, I was just absolutely convinced that, like, this was what I had to do. Like, I had to get out from this pressure cooker situation that my daily life at my house had become, you know? And it was really, like, it was really severe because I wondered, you know, Am I ever going to have a good relationship with my mom again? Like, what about my younger sister? Like, what happens to all this? But I just had this profound sense of, I have to pull the ripcord on this. I have to get out. And so it was definitely a thing that I'll never forget. And, you know, probably the weirdest sort of other shoe dropping moment of that would be when Monday came around and it was time to return to school like on a monday and you know it was just like hey do i want to go to school do i not want to go to school like my grandfather would routinely leave for the golf course like pretty early in the morning and um you know it was just like well are you going to go to school or are you not going to go to school like it was totally just up to me and that was like an unbelievably weird thing to figure out because usually you know Every school day prior to that, you know, there was my mom and my sister and whoever like getting ready to go about the day. And the absolute expectation was like, oh, you know, get in gear and begin doing your thing. And so that was just completely absent. You know, it was just like, oh, I guess I'll go to school now, (laughs) kind of thing. Like, truly bizarre. Like, I, I can't even. It was the scariest sort of like, oh, shit. Like, my fate is legitimately just in my own hands now. And what do I do with this sort of thing? Yeah, there were a lot of mornings in which uh, I'd show up to school a little bit late. Because I would probably stop off at the convenience store and plug in a few games of Final Fight or Strider or something before I felt like going to school. And that will begin to have some other ramifications as we get a little further on into this tale. Another really profound memory I have, after that summer had ended and the baseball season was over, I was bugging my grandfather for any chores I could do around the house for money because I had really gotten accustomed to having some money in my pocket. But I also, oof, like the last thing I wanted was another fast food job. So back to pulling weeds. Washing the car, like anything I could do to hustle some extra change, like I was down for it, but I did not want to put on the paper hat and shovel fries. Like I was just not down with that, even though I was looking for like other things to try and do for money. And I was so becoming possessed of the console scene that I managed to roll up enough money to buy an import Super Famicom in January of 1991. Um, and so uh, I have this very vivid memory of a day in which I was playing through the Japanese version of Super Mario World. By the way, the Super Famicom is the Japanese equivalent of the Super NES, for those of you that don't know. I can't really envision a scenario in which somebody would bother to listen to this podcast and not know that, but just in case. So I have this very vivid memory of playing through the Japanese version of Super Mario World for the first time. And then turning it off and watching updates about the Gulf War on CNN. Like, it was a very surreal time to just be on my own. No real direct parental supervision because my grandfather was like super lax about things. And just becoming less and less interested in high school. And this was all actually before Street Fighter II dropped, which would just be a couple of months later and would completely change my worldview and outlook on things and change my love of gaming into something else. But we're going to get into that. After this next episode, what I'd love to do is sit down with some of the other Ruminations Network gaming peeps and kind of pick this stuff apart. And I'd really love to hear some of their stories about you know, their own formative years and what sort of things continue to motivate them as gamers. And we'll do that next time. And once again, this is the Six Button Samurai. Thank you so much for listening. Peace out, everybody.